there is McDonald's workers striking all over this country. And you have the original Fight for 15 progressive who's been with fast food workers for years. He's out uh, on the picket lines with them. And then you have a lot of Johnny-come-lately faux-gressives. Somebody left in the comments for me to start calling them the faux-gressives rather than the faux-progressives. So then you have some of the faux-gressives out there trying to get some of that Bernie, that Bernie juice. So let's hear Bernie uh, talking. Oh, the McDonald's workers, they are protesting. I saw Dallas. I saw Chicago. I saw Flint. I saw Detroit. We saw, um, uh, I think I saw Washington, too. It's 12 cities around the country. And uh, Bernie was out there talking to the peeps, like always. So let's hear what Bernie had to say, uh, talking to some of the McDonald's workers that are striking. And they are striking not only for uh, $15 minimum wage, but there is a sexual harassment epidemic going on in these fast food chains, McDonald's and others, where uh, female workers are being sexually harassed uh, in many ways through their managers. Uh, there's also awful working conditions at these McDonald's. Uh, restaurants all over the country. So let's hear what Bernard Sanders had to say. And hello, workers all over this country are standing up and fighting for justice. And let me tell you guys, what Adriana just said is absolutely true. You are here years ago when people talked about raising the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour, where it is right now, the $15 an hour, we were told that we were crazy, we were extreme, it will never happen. But because of the courage of SEIU and Fight for 15 and thousands and thousands of workers who stood up and told the American people that we are human beings, we cannot raise our families, we cannot pay the rent, we cannot put gas in the car on eight or nine bucks an hour. We need a living wage, and that living wage is 15 bucks an hour. And you stood up in cities all across this country, and the American people and politicians began to listen to you. And state after state said, you know what? These workers are right. We're going to raise that minimum wage to $15 an hour. Right now, because of the efforts of SEIU and Fight for 15 and all of you, Seven states in this country have now passed legislation to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. And a couple of months ago, the relevant committee in the United States House of Representatives passed out of that committee legislation to raise the federal minimum wage to seven and a quarter an hour. We have got to do everything we can to make sure the House passes that legislation and that when it comes to the Senate, that the Republicans get give us the votes that we need to pass that legislation. This is the bottom line. Today, we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. But tens of millions of workers don't know that because they're working longer hours for low wages. And we end up with three families in America, three families owning more wealth than the bottom half of the American people. Does anybody think that that is moral or that is right? And the only way workers are gonna make real progress and be treated with the respect and dignity they deserve is when they have a union. And we've got legislation in that says, if 50% of the workers in an agency plus one sign a card 
they're going to have a union. And that legislation also says that any company that refuses to negotiate a fair contract, first contract with the union, they will be severely penalized. And our legislation also repeals Section 14B of the Taft-Hartley Act, which allows for so-called right-to-work uh, legislation. So let me conclude uh, by just thanking you. You are, again, you are heroes, you are heroines. And as a result of your efforts, millions and millions of workers are now enjoying better wages. And the momentum is with us to make sure that in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, any worker who works 40 hours a week will not live in poverty. So thank you all very much. So that was Bernie Sanders uh, talking to some of the workers uh, that was, I believe, in Dallas uh, that are striking right now for a higher minimum wage at McDonald's to uh, basically call out McDonald's and get systematic change uh, with sexual harassment of many of the female workers that is rampant at McDonald's, Burger King, other places, as well as verbal abuse, uh, violence that have been perpetrated against these workers. These workers are paying for are working in some cases for the national minimum wage, 725. I've seen that in Alabama when I was down in Alabama interviewing fast food workers in 2017. And I've seen that uh, here in New York, speaking with people that might make 850, 950. Uh, the, you know, it's $15 in New York now, but it's not all the way there for all workers yet. So why I think this is important is, obviously I think it's important that Bernie do this because it's the right thing to do. But why did Hillary Clinton lose in 2016? There are many reasons. She's corrupt, uninspiring, didn't, didn't go to Wisconsin. We can go on and on. She had 5% less African-Americans come out for her. She had 5% less age 18 to 29 come out for her. And she had 6% less Latinos come out for her all those categories I'm comparing to Obama in 12%. So she had 5%, 5%, 6% less in those major categories, black, Latino, age 18 to 29 come out for her as compared to Obama in 2012. Well, who works at fast food shops predominantly? Obviously older people do too. There's a lot of retirees who can't afford to live on social security. They're suddenly working at McDonald's. But who do you see at McDonald's and Burger King and other fast food uh, restaurants. You see a lot of young people who can't get better work. You see a lot of minorities who can't get better work. You see a lot of poor white people who can't get better work. They're all the demographics that Hillary Clinton suffered with are in that fast food. And it's not only um, fast food industry. You're talking Walmart. You're talking a lot of different low wage workplaces where their corporate behemoth, plutocratic, oligarchic uh, parent companies, talking to you, Walmart, uh, we're talking to McDonald's, we're talking to a lot, refuse to allow them to unionize. So you have Bernie out there. We'll talk about the other ones who are suddenly out there fighting for 15. You have Bernie out there, and he's been consistent out there, speaking directly to the voters who could put him over the top against somebody like Donald Trump. You think these people are going to vote for Donald Trump? No. But do you think these people are going to be so inspired to come out for Joe Biden? Because I don't see Joe Biden out there today. 
with the with the $15 workers. I've been looking. I don't see Kamala Harris either out there today with the fight for 15 workers. That's not an accident. If they wanted to be there, they'd be there. So you got Bernie Sanders fighting, not only so they could have a $15 minimum wage, not only uh, to end the sexual harassment and violence, but to push the right to unionize. That is important. And, you know, Joe Biden, he calls himself uh, Uncle Joe and I'm a union man. Well, Joe Biden's not out there pushing for Walmart workers to be able to unionize. Joe Biden's not out there for McDonald's workers to unionize. As far as I know, neither is Kamala Harris. Bernie Sanders is the main candidate that has stressed unionization. He has also unionized his campaign. So when you look at that Rust Belt, what has happened to that Rust Belt that, want, that defeated Hillary Clinton and elected Donald Trump? Their jobs have been offshored. Their unions have been shrinking and decimated. NAFTA. So Bernie Sanders is pressing all the right buttons. Yes, there's these polls. I'm not going to get into today's ridiculous poll for Monmouth, which again oversampled uh, older people and undersampled younger people to show that Joe Biden is crushing Bernie Sanders. I, I, I've already reported quite a few videos uh, showing you why, yeah, they're getting to that number because they're oversampling older people and undersampling young people. Not difficult to get that, to, to get to that number if that's how you're going to do it. But I think this is really smart by Bernie Sanders. And I also think he could compare and contrast on that debate stage. Hey, Joe, were you out there with the McDonald's workers? Were you out there with the Verizon workers that I was trying to get uh, better, uh, better hour, better pay, uh, help them unionize? You out there with the communications workers of America? You out there with Walmart? Have you fought Amazon and won? I mean... Bernie Sanders is the only one in that debate stage that has that story to tell because he's been doing it consistently. And let me tell you something that's a very popular story with progressives. It's also a popular story with some of the people that watch Fox News. A lot, there's, there's a not, not so small, it might surprise you, but there's a not small part of the Republican Party that is blue collar. They are, you know, into... Uh, you know, the social issues like abortion and things like that, but they, um, or pr they're pro-life. Uh, they're into like, you know, being anti-immigrant and this and that, but they're mostly economic. They, they, they would, and I know Republicans like this, they would vote for someone that they don't agree with on all social issues, but they think has their best interest and is more with the blue collar worker like they are. Want to know why? Because they just did it. You think a lot of those blue collar workers and a lot of those Trump voters loved Donald Trump? You think a lot of them agreed with the way he carries on? You think a lot of them agreed with all of his positions? A lot of them didn't agree with him saying, let's ban the Muslims, let's do this. But he spoke to their economic anxiety. They spoke, he, uh, he I mean, it was he spoke to them, it was lies coming out of his mouth, but he spoke to what they feel has been missing from the Democratic Party. He spoke to basically their feeling of abandonment from Michigan to Wisconsin to Ohio to Pennsylvania. I think that's why Donald Trump did pretty well uh, in New Hampshire during the Republican primary, because a lot of these places is the, is the core of deindustrialization. <clears throat> but the way to combat Donald Trump is to be 
on the total opposite side of the political spectrum. So Donald Trump's not for a $15 winning wage. Donald Trump's not for stronger unions and more companies unionizing. Donald Trump's not for ending stock buybacks. Donald Trump is not for any of these actual, not just progressive things, but populist things, real populism. You know, and Bernie is the only one that will be able to contrast with him on that debate stage. But first, it comes down to Bernie contrasting with these progressives. Uh, and, you know, here's just one of them. But, you know, you got Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. Suddenly he's progressive. And he's out there with the McDonald's workers striking. Democratic presidential candidate Washington Governor Jay Inslee attended a strike held by McDonald's employees in Chicago on Thursday afternoon. Look at that. Jay is with the people. Oh, that's the whole story. They just show pictures, I guess. So why do I have a problem with this? And by the way, uh, I like that Jay Inslee is you know, good on climate change, but that's not the only issue uh, that we vote on. And Bernie Sanders is very good on climate change. But you know, does Jay Inslee think that Maybe he expects it because most reporters are lazy and don't actually look too in-depth of anyone's record. But Jay Inslee is the governor of Washington State. Well, Washington State, it's not even a government anymore. It's an employee of Amazon. Amazon runs Washington State. Amazon runs Seattle. Amazon has bought off all of the politicians. How do we know this? Well, Besides the fact that Status Quo was just in Seattle a few weeks ago, bringing you in the field reporting, Jay Inslee has allowed Amazon to create a homeless wasteland in Seattle. What do I mean by that? Well, rent has gone up 70% in Seattle in five years. Why is that? Well, when Amazon has run of the city, when Amazon is able, you know, Amazon employs a lot of six-figure salary. That's great for them. There, it does create you know restaurants and new small business, new business in the area, but it also hikes up the cost of living. So yes, they're able to bring in more uh, mid upper middle class people that make six figures and higher to live in Seattle. But it pushes out working class people. It's not only happening in Seattle; it's happening everywhere. It pushes out those people that work at McDonald's or Burger King or Walmart or Target, or fill in the blank of low-wage work. None of them can afford to live in Seattle anymore. A lot of them can't afford to live in Washington State anymore. And it's not just the fast food workers. There are people that make 60000 75000 it's, it's hard to afford to live in Seattle when the rent keeps going up that high. But this is the price. You know, you got the Jay Inslee's of the world that on one end are out there fighting for 15 with their workers, but in reality, as governor, Amazon, uh, the city council of Seattle, was about to pass a something called a head tax. And this head tax would have charged Amazon $250 a head. Not just Amazon, Microsoft, other companies like it. $250 a head to go towards affordable housing because affordable housing has become non-existent because companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Boeing are, are, are responsible, yes, for creating higher wage jobs, but for also pricing out uh, lower wage workers. So are we just going to have just a a, a country where, you know, when one class goes up, 
when one set of people with certain skills uh, are able to get six figure six figure jobs in tech, well, that means then we're just basically going to make the city a tale of two cities where those people could live and thrive and eat at the restaurants and drink at the bars and, you know, you know, be merry and yuppie and enjoy life. While the rest of the city blocks are littered with homeless people in Seattle, where people who are Seattle natives can no longer no longer live there. Am I t does this sound familiar to you if you live in San Francisco or Los Angeles or Portland? or Chicago, or DC, or New York, Philadelphia, Cleveland. So, Jay Inslee, spare me. You are ta you've taken a lot of money from Amazon, and you have allowed them to have run at the place, and that city council vote that would have charged Amazon $250 a head, it's pennies to them, got killed because of Jeff Bezos and Amazon killing it, and that would have gone towards lifting a lot of those homeless people off the streets into affordable housing on making more affordable housing for the people getting priced out of places like Seattle. So you also have Julian Castro out there fighting for 15 with people. Well, as HUD secretary, he wasn't exactly fighting for low, lower income people who need affordable housing. He was selling off foreclosed homes. Where? To Wall Street. But he's out there fighting for 15. These faux aggressives, they're so arrogant because they don't think anyone is going to look. Status quo is looking, baby. We will expose you. So that's how you know. Bernie Sanders has been consistent. Those two have not. I did not see Joe Biden out there today. And by the way, you have Nancy Pelosi, you know, doing the, it's, it's all theatrics now. Nancy Pelosi is now giving press conferences every day to basically get like under the under the skin or toupee of Donald Trump and get him angry. And, you know, CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times and all the pundit class and all the fake progressive, all the fake journalists, they love it because it's just, you know, Trump versus Pelosi. Let's get the boxing boxing match uh, sound effects going. It's conflict and sensationalism. It's lazy journalism. It's not even journalism. But Nancy Pelosi gives this press conference today on, you know, Trump is involved in a cover-up and all this stuff. They're still, you know, beating the drums of Russiagate till they're blue in the face. She didn't mention the, the events going on all day for the fight for 15. Nope. Didn't mention any of it. This is the opposition party that doesn't mention when thousands and thousands and thousands of workers are protesting against one of the biggest corporations in the world. Why is that? Maybe because their donors don't want to highlight it. So these are, I'm supposed to cheer Nancy Pelosi and fighting Trump and, the, and his cover-up and all these things when I just know if they, if they retake power, it's just going to be the same old, same old. I don't, want the same, I don't want same old, same old. Can you guys afford same old, same old? If you can't afford same old, same old, let me know right now. Put it in the super chat. I'd like to know, do you think the way to defeat Trump is to have Nancy Pelosi standing up there is to have these faux aggressives out fighting for 15 when it's going to be revealed that they're total hypocrites and that they've been they've been Julian Castro's policies and Jay Inslee's policies and Pete Buttigieg's policies have been stomping on these workers for years. We need something progressive. We need a contrast to Donald Trump, not Republican light. You know who is raising money a little bit different? Take a guess. Who's raising money, uh, maybe not as much through people, 
but raising money through plutocrats. In February, Pete Buttigieg stepped into the Manhattan office of Wall Street veteran Charles Myers to talk politics over deli sandwiches. Mmm. Making me hungry hanging out with Wall Street bigwigs over a little turkey and pastrami. Citigroup Inc. Managing Director Jan Kotenlem hosted a fundraiser in March for Kamala Harris at his Fifth Avenue apartment, where she showed where she shook the paw of the banker's labradoodle. Oh, God. Three days later, former Goldman Sachs Group Inc. partner Bruce Heyman raised more than 100000 for Amy Klobuchar at his home in Chicago. He's also planning an event for Joe Biden this fall. Oh, my God. America's mayor, Pete Buttigieg, is sitting there having pastrami sandwiches with Wall Street bigwigs. For the people, for the people, Kamala Harris, who's out on Colbert the other night, and, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm for the people. And, you know, it, all, these, all these late night show hosts are idiots, and they just give a total platforms to Wall Street puppets like Kamala Harris. Uh, I like Colbert normally, but... They, they, it, it, the media is public relations for Wall Street. The corporate media, and I'm throwing in the late night shows with that. I'm showing in the, the morning shows with that. I'm showing, throwing in the view with that. It is PR and free advertising for Wall Street, fossil fuel companies, big pharmaceutical companies, Silicon Valley, and big real estate. And they are all in one sick mixed bowl of groupthink. They are all in one sick, pathetic, lazy bowl of entitlement and arrogance because they don't leave their bubble and go speak with you, the people, actual people. So when you have Kamala Harris sitting there on Fifth Avenue, you know, playing with a banker's gold, gold labradoodle while probably sipping champagne, that's what happens at these fiestas. Three days later, Goldman Sachs is raising money for Amy Klobuchar, which I don't care about because she's got no chance. And Joe Biden, I'm a, I'm a union man, Joe Biden. That's what he said at his kickoff rally. I'm a union man. Middle class Joe. I'm electable. Excuse me while I go give favors to Goldman Sachs. Why can't I think of, why can't I think, wasn't there a candidate who ran uh, for president in 2016. What was that candidate's name? She was a Democrat. She loves war. She gave private speeches to Goldman Sachs. She, she said she had a public position and a private position. She told the bankers, you know, don't fret, don't fret. You know, I think you're misunderstood. Your role in the banking crisis. I think that was all misunderstood, you know? Who was that? Because obviously the American people, especially Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, they love uh, Goldman Sachs. They love candidates who have daily sandwiches with Wall Street bankers. They love, you know, Joe Biden having private fundraisers with Goldman Sachs. This is exactly what the anti-establishment crowd is thriving more. I'm trying not to get demonetized today, but more bending down and taking it up the beep. From beep, from beep.
if you like my sound effects, let us know in the super chat. Intent. So what's, what's the most egregious to me about this? Is this sentence. And this story is from Bloomberg, Bloomberg, by the way. The mayor of South Bend, Indiana, the senators from California and Minnesota, and the ex-vice president are among the Democratic presidential candidates disavowing corporate cash, lobbyist checks, and the super PAC system. They're trying to outdo each other with promises to finance their campaigns with grassroots contributions. Well, Joe Biden's definitely going to get those grassroots contributions from the bingo halls all over America. Sorry to my viewers from senior homes. Not trying to be ageist. But while they play down the role of money and influence, longtime Wall Street donors who have both say, longtime Wall Street donors who have both say little has changed. I've talked to about half of them. And I have not run into a single one who said, hey, you worked at Goldman Sachs. I can't take your money, says Heyman, who helped elect Barack Obama by collecting checks from friends and later became his ambassador to Canada. I've not heard that ever. Well, no wonder. No wonder Barack Obama never jailed a banker as president after the bankers brought down the global financial economy. All the bankers put him in office. And I was hoodwinked. Were you hoodwinked by then-candidate Obama? You spoke about parting the seas, lifting the skies, lifting us up to a new kind of politics, a post-partisan era. Uh, you know, but, he, but then he had to take bathroom breaks to you know, bend over and for Wall Street. So you got Kamala Harris on for Medicare for All. You think her Wall Street bankers? that are invested in big pharmaceutical companies of Medicare for all? <laughs> Got Pete Buttigieg. I don't even know what he's for. He says, oh, it's about values. Let's talk about, let me show you my value. We'll get to policy later. Yeah, he, he'll propose whatever policies that Wall Street guy that he ate sandwiches with, tell him he's allowed to propose. Amy Klobuchar, I don't care. Joe Biden, yeah, you know, I'm for a public option, and I'm, he's running on unity. It's like Hillary Clinton with a penis is running again. That's his message. We need to unify. And you know the people who talk about unifying? They are the people that don't have any actual progressive or populist policies. That's who talks about unifying. But the fact that you got Wall Street executives on the record saying, I've talked to about half of them. And I have not heard one of them say, well, you're at Goldman Sachs, so I can't take your money. And this is what this is when the arrogance comes into play. And this is when the sociopathic nature of our politics come into play. When you have people like Kamala Harris by day going out there and putting on this show that she's for the people and she's for Medicare for all and she's for free college or debt free college, whatever that means. It's not free public college tuition. And she's for, you know, raising money for the, raising wages for the teachers and all of these things that sound pretty nice. But Wall Street executives are not for any of those things because Wall Street executives are heavily, make their money by investing in the very plutocratic and oligarchic corporations and entities that would go down if Medicare for all were a thing that would go that would be harmed if free public college was a thing. It would be harmed with a minimum wage increase. 
They will be harmed with stronger labor unions. Wall Street is at the center of everything in American life. As Mike Gravel said in our interview, if you haven't seen my interview with Mike Gravel, it's up here on the channel. It is the military industrial complex via Wall Street running the country and the media. But let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question, honestly. And I'm not only saying this, I'm really not only saying this because we're trying to grow our membership and we're trying to raise money. I'm really, I want to ask you, do you expect any journalists at Kamala Harris rallies or any journalists that interview Kamala Harris or any journalists that interview voters for Kamala Harris or Joe Biden? Do you expect any of them to bring this up? Do you expect any of them to bring up that her largest donor in her entire career is Warner Media? You know who Warner Media was the parent company of until last year? CNN. So basically, Kamala Harris's bigger financial sugar daddy was CNN's parent company. AT&T now owns CNN. I'm sure they gave money to Kamala Harris, too. You think anyone's going to challenge Kamala Harris voters on, well, if you want, you know, tax cuts for the middle class, if you want, uh, you know, uh, expanded health care, if you want uh, more pay for uh, teachers, do you expect somebody who's taking a lot of money from Wall Street, the same Wall Street that is against every little, every single policy that she's saying she's for, do you think they're just giving her money for charity? Or do you think they're giving her money because they expect something in return? Do you remember uh, a candidate named Barack Obama who said he was against uh, Wall Street uh, excess and greed and then never, never actually um, jailed any bankers? and passed a toothless band-aid called Dodd-Frank over a gunshot wound. You're not going to have any journalists do that because A, they're paid not to tell the truth. Uh, B, they're paid not to challenge corporate candidates on their corporatism. And C, they are paid to focus on the sound bites, the theatrics, the narrative, and the brand. That's how, see, that's how Kamala Harris has been propped up to the point she is now, which is still not that high. She's still polling at 8 to 10% in most national polls, despite all the free airtime she's gotten from CNN, despite all of the adoring coverage she's gotten from places like The View and Stephen Colbert the other night. They're making a Hillary Clinton disciple. You know who's running Kamala Harris's campaign and who, all, all her staffers? They worked for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. You know who's donating a lot of money to Kamala Harris? Hillary Clinton donors. Why do you think Kamala Harris was meeting with Hillary Clinton's top donors in the Hamptons in the summer of 2017, six months after she became a senator to talk about Medicare for All and free college? Now I wanna cover a story that's not getting a lot of attention. And it should be. And by the way, it's about to absolutely like thunderstorm and lightning here in New York City. So that definitely, definitely is symbolic of the current state of this corporation. I mean country, because we are the United Corporations of America. So as you remember, uh, there was an African-American man by the name of Eric Garner, who was choked to death uh, by New York City police a couple years ago. He was in the street, 
selling cigarettes. Uh, in 2014, uh, it's not exactly crime, crime of the century stuff. I think they said he was selling illegal cigarettes, I, you know, something like that. So, like in every other case, the cops got off for illegally choking this man to death. As he stood there screaming, I cannot, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. The cop who killed him got off. Grand jury decided not to indict him for reasons I truly can't even fathom. And Eric Garner's family has been fighting for justice for years since. Any justice would be nice. Well, new text messages came out showing you exactly how much the life of Eric Garner was worth to the New York City Police Department. A police commander in Staten Island received text messages from one of his officers in July 2014, informing him that a man identified as Eric Garner had been arrested and was most likely dead on arrival after he had been wrestled to the ground. Not a big deal, the lieutenant replied. We were effecting a lawful arrest. Audible gasps were heard as the texts were read aloud on Thursday during a police disciplinary hearing for Officer Daniel Pantaleo. He is accused of recklessly using a chokehold that led to Mr. Garner's death after he was detained on the suspicion that he was selling untaxed cigarettes. The text and testimony provided unsettling new details in one of the most wrenching cases of suspected police misconduct in New York. Let me repeat this. He's texted, not a big deal, the lieutenant replied. We were effecting a lawful arrest. So, you know, you would text not a big deal to somebody who works for you if they, like, mailed something to the wrong address. You wouldn't like it, but okay. Or if they got something wrong, like spelled something wrong, in our case. You know, not a big deal. Change it as soon as you can. The New York Police Department lieutenant got a text that this guy is dead and it was not exactly, uh, you know, the best of cases, which I'm about to read to you, and says, not a big deal. The officer has never faced criminal charges. A grand jury on Staten Island declined to indict Officer Pantaleo in 2014, a federal civil rights uh, inquiry has dragged on for years without charges being filed. The statute of limitations expires on Janu July 17th, the fifth anniversary of Mr. Garner's death. So the statute of limitations is in two months. An independent police watchdog agency, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, brought the current charges against Officer Pantaleo, which results resulted in this week's hearing. The evidence at the hearing picked up events from the police department's perspective, while Mr. Garner, who is at least six feet, three inches tall and had asthma so severe that he quit his job, was lying motionless on the ground on Bay Street near the Staten Island Ferry. The communication started with Sergeant Samanoff messaging Lieutenant Batten and telling him that Mr. Garner had been wrestled to the ground and then adding he's most likely dead on arrival using the abbreviation for dead on uh, DOA, using the abbreviation for dead on arrival. He has no pulse, Sergeant Samanith wrote. After acknowledging the message, Lieutenant Bannon wrote his follow-up note, now linking not a big deal with I can't breathe, as the two defining quotations for Mr. Garner's death. No big deal, Gwen Carr, Mr. Garner's mother, angrily told reporters outside the police department headquarters in Lower Manhattan, 
where the hearing was held, if one of his loved ones was on the ground dead and someone came up to him and said, eh, it's no big deal, how would you feel about it? During Monday's testimony, the supervisor who oversaw the police's internal review, Deputy Inspector Charles Barton, said that in 2015, he ordered the lead investigator to recommend disciplinary charges against Officer Patalea, but the department's internal prosecution unit never filed charges. Look at that. The police protect their own. The medical examiner who performed an autopsy on Mr. Garner testified on Wednesday that the chokehold set into motion a lethal sequence that led to the asthma attack that killed him. Officer Pantaleo's lawyer, Stuart London, said that his client used an approved maneuver, a seatbelt hold, that the police have been trained to use in incidents where police people act violently or are being arrested. But the commanding officer of the police academy, Deputy Inspector Richard D., testified on Tuesday that Officer Pantaleo's actions meet the definition of a chokehold. He added that the seatbelt maneuver was never taught nor approved by the department in 2006 when Officer Pantaleo went through the academy or in 2008 when he received training to become plainclothes officer. Mr. London said this week that his client has been a scapegoat and added that Mr. Garner was in poor health and that he set these factors in motion by resisting arrest. Oh my God. Okay, well, so right now, right now, objectively, I'm in pretty poor health. I'm in pretty poor health. Just had back surgery. I've got tape around my foot because when I woke up from back surgery, uh, the numbness was a lot better in my foot, but now I have plantar fasciitis which I've never even heard of, but of course I have it. So I have tape around my foot and I'm icing and all these things. So if, you know, if, uh, if something happens where I need to run or I need to boogie, I can't do it. If I get killed because I can't run, are they gonna be like, oh, well, you know, he should have ran. Well, I can't run right now. It's not my fault. My back got messed up largely from traveling. I also fell in Standing Rock on, slipped down ice, slipped on ice and fell down a, not a huge hill, but a tiny hill and hurt my back even more. So this is the equivalent of saying somebody with back problems or saying somebody who has diabetes or whatever, you're responsible for your own death. We illegally choked you out. We wouldn't let up when I said I can't breathe. You're responsible because you were in poor health. That's beyond blaming the victim. That's savagery coming from the New York Police Department. Mr. London used the testimony of Lieutenant Bannon, Sergeant Salmonath, and two other officers who were involved in the arrest to try to establish that his client was an exemplary officer and that Mr. Garner had been a resisting arrest. But the introduction of the text messages under cross-examination by prosecutors from the Civilian Complaint Review Board seemed to damage the defense's case. Lieutenant Bannon was pressed by one prosecutor, Susan O'Hare, to explain his text message. My reasoning, he said, was not to be malicious. It's to make sure the officer knew he was put in a bad situation. Oh, the officer was the one put in a bad situation. Because for a untaxed, the sale of untaxed cigarettes, you needed four or five officers swarming uh, a large man and taking him down for untaxed cigarettes? Would they do that to a white man? I don't think so. Would you agree that Eric Garner was put in a bad situation? Mr. O'Hare asked. Lieutenant Bannon hesitated for several seconds. I don't know how to answer that. Of course you don't know how to answer that. 
The testimony on Thursday also focused on the low-level quality of life enforcement that the police were conducting in the weeks before Mr. Garner's death. Mr. Garner was arrested three times during that crackdown, the final one on the day he died. Quote, the arrest of Eric Garner was a result of a chain of decisions originating at the very highest levels of the New York Police Department. Patrick J. Lynch, the president of the Police Benevolent Association, said after the hearing, police officers who enforce quality of life offenses are not cowboys or free agents. They follow the direction of their supervisors, who in turn are responding to complaints from the community. Yeah, because I know, I know all my neighbors are saying, if you see a big black man on the corner selling untaxed cigarettes, choke him out. Police unions, you know, I'm pro-union, but these police unions are disgusting. They're the same police unions who are defending Jason Van Dyke in Chicago, who shot Laquan McDonald 17 times. Oh, excuse me, 16 times. When he was already lifeless, probably after the third or fourth shot. Who, by the way, you want to talk about how terrible corporate media is? The Atlantic, the Atlantic magazine and website literally just made now former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, an ideas contributor. He's now an ideas columnist, Rahm Emanuel, the same Rahm Emanuel who helped the police department cover up the Laquan McDonald execution, the same Rahm Emanuel who basically has, you know, left most of Chicago to rot while beautifying and gentrifying and pouring in millions of Wall Street money into that Riverwalk area downtown, which is very beautiful. I've walked it, it's nice. But if you look around the rest, the rest of Chicago, he's let it rot. The same Rahm Emanuel that has allowed a police force to become a militarized occupying force in Chicago. Ty and I were there last summer, we saw it, we covered it. In other news related to the Eric Garner death, Daniel Pantaleo's trial on the Eric Garner chokehold case is delayed yet again. Not a criminal trial, whether he should be uh, administrative trial. After taking a four-day break, the administrative trial of Officer Daniel Pantaleo on charges that he used a banned chokehold in the death of Eric Garner in 2014 continued on Tuesday, running three hours before taking another hiatus that will last two weeks. The slow progress appears to be frustrating all parties involved except Pantaleo and his lawyers, who told an irate judge, Rosemario Maldonado, that the delay was unavoidable as a witness they would like to call is currently unavailable. The witness, a medical examiner from Missouri, is expected to challenge the New York City medical examiner's determination that Garner's death was a homicide brought on by a chokehold. But Pantaleo's attorney said their witness cannot travel now because he is currently the only medical examiner in St. Louis this week. Give me a break. The Garner family doesn't fully understand why are we having so much time off, said Suzanne O'Hare, one of the Civilian Complaint Review Board lawyers prosecuting Pantaleo's case. It's a great burden. It's a great amount of anxiety and emotional stress for them. Maldano agreed. I've expressed my frustration about this in conference and sidebars, she told Pantaleo's lawyers, Stuart London, before agreeing to suspend proceedings until June 5th. In a pretrial motion last month, Pantaleo's lawyers had asked Maldano, Maldonado for last Friday off from trial as Pantaleo, who is still employed by the NP NYPD, had a scheduled vacation. At the time, Maldonado refused, but last week she agreed to recess court that Friday and on this Monday when Pantaleo's lawyers said they were unable to schedule witnesses on those days. This is what you call police stall tactics.
You're talking five years now. Five years since this man has been brutally, I call it, assassinated. This man has escaped criminal justice. He's not going to be tried criminally, which is an absurd embarrassment and disgrace. And he probably will get a slap on the wrist administratively because this is the country we live in. It's an extension, frankly. I mean, what do you call it other than Jim Crow? They're executing black men and they're getting away with it. I know some police officers that are great men. And obviously there's female produce, uh, uh, police officers. But there is a systemic rotting of the apple that's been going on since the beginning of time, where American business, American corporate media bow down, they, they fetishize the police, and that fetish, fetishizing and putting them up on pedestals, no matter what, is what allows them to execute black men with no repercussions, no real repercussions. And this comes down to presidential leadership too, because frankly, Criminal, uh, you know, when the we need to start at the beginning. Police reports. Should police reports be written by police involved in the situations? Or should we be talking more to witnesses? Do we need to start talking about, do we need legal observers with policemen at all times? That's the only way you're going to stop police from just without even thinking, executing black men, but then after the fact, not covering it up with an alternative story. So I know Bernie Sanders is talking about criminal justice reform. I know Tulsi Gabbard is, I know Elizabeth Warren is, Kamala Harris claims to be, even though she locked up a lot of black men for no reason and threw away the key. But this is something, you know, I I don't see many media uh, companies following up on Eric Garner and this officer that murdered him. And that's a disgrace, if you ask me.